Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Jessica Grogan will join us to discuss Countering America. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, the notion that we as individuals are empowered as masters of our own destiny to choose professions that fulfill our inner selves and to reach our full potential seems taken for granted in today's American society. But such a philosophy was not always the norm and sprung from the humanistic psychology movements born after World War II. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Jessica Grogan. Dr. Grogan has a Ph.D. in American Studies from the University of Texas at Austin and has taught at Southwestern University, University of Texas, and Mount Holyoke College. Her new book, Encountering America, Humanistic Psychology, 60s Culture, and the Shaping of the Modern Self, explores this issue for a general audience. And uh, Dr. Grogan, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a great book, Encountering America, in which you uh, talk about the rise of the humanistic psychology movement and how this really has shaped modern culture in America. What was uh, the psychological culture like around the 1940s, 50s or so? So in the, in the 40s and 50s, psychology was dominated by behaviorism, and the scientific method was king. It was all about empiricism, and, and anything that could be studied in a laboratory, anything that was observable, was preferred over anything that was not. So... Um, that meant that our inner thoughts and our emotions and our desires were things that were not really an object of psychological study during the 40s and 50s. Behaviorism was something that ro- arose in the early party, part of the 20th century. So that, I mean, that was the idea that the way that we acted told us everything about human beings. So everything you needed to know about people could be observed. And everything that related to how people behaved um, had to do with learning, so you were conditioned to act a certain way. So John B. Watson famously said in, the, in the, one of the first behaviorist texts that he could, if you gave him a dozen children, he could create children with 10 to 12 different professions. He could create a doctor and a lawyer and a beggar and a thief. Um, so the idea was that everything could be conditioned and everything could be learned, therefore everything could be studied in a laboratory. So that was really the emphasis in terms of psychological science. In terms of clinical psychology or psychotherapy, um, there was a real kind of adjustment focus. There was a lot of, it was the beginnings of diagnosis and pathologizing people's problems and thinking about the ways that they were deviant from the cultural norm, essentially. So the most likely thing that you would find in psychotherapy was an attempt to get you to fit in better with the cultural norm or the average person to kind of get you to adjust or conform. So there really was no notion of, for example, an inner self. It was more so you have tabula rasa on which anything could kind of be written. Yeah, I'd say the dominant idea, right, was not interested in accomplishing your life, was kind of pre-programmed. It was, it was product of how you'd been conditioned as a child or how you were being conditioned at that moment. So everything was kind of predetermined in those ways. 
so how did this begin to change? What shifted and what really took one of the historical roots of humanistic psychology? I think a group of people felt in the 50s within psychology that it had kind of gone too far. I mean, in the same way that people were beginning to feel that about the cultural ethos as a whole, there was an overemphasis on conformity and adjustment. And it was people were kind of being squashed in the process. So Abraham Maslow was kind of the leader of humanistic psychology. And in the 50s, he gathered some like-minded scholars from actually a number of different disciplines trying to push psychology in a new direction and formulate a movement which in the 60s became humanistic psychology that would look at more than was looked at by the behaviorists or was looked at in the laboratory. So he had kind of a new idea of science that it, it could be more holistic and he drew on gestalt and phenomenology which were more popular um, in Europe, specifically in Germany. And he kind of tried to bring more into science than had currently was currently being studied. Well, humanistic psychology was based on, meant to be a pushback against this negative emphasis that had dominated the field of psychotherapy in particular. But it was a move away from pathology and a negative way of looking at people. And, and Maslow in particular thought, what can we gain by studying really healthy people and people who are succeeding? And so it was a push towards looking at the mo kind of the most that we could achieve as people and what, what it actually looked like to reach our potential. So humanistic psychologists thought of humans as innately drawn to grow. They, they were motivated towards growth. And it, all you needed to do to kind of get them to move in that direction was give them condi conditions that would foster growth. Um, so it's a different view of human nature. I mean, when you talked about a blank and that it might get frustrated at some point by our environment, but really that's where we're going. Um, so humanistic psychology was interested in kind of liberating us from the things that were holding us back from reaching our potential, but also was interested in normal people, healthy people, or people who could potentially be healthy and kind of thought of all people in a, in a more positive light. So rather than focusing on, uh, on the pathological cases, really um, a focus on growth and m more positive psychology kind of movement. Right, and also I think thought that we could learn things about pathology by studying health, and they were very concerned that the ways that we define pathology were really biased, and we had all these kind of cultural values that we were bringing into it. So somebody who, you know, a CEO of a top company might not, look healthy and, you know, in an intuitive way. They might be a workaholic or really tense or really, you know, have insomnia and work all the time, you know, but they might also be thought of as healthy because they were successful. So humanistic psychologists wanted to redefine what health was and in the process that would help give us more clarity about illness instead of having health be the absence of psychological symptoms. And this uh, movement then really began to take root and grow during the 60s and really gave rise to a lot of the cultural phenomenon of the, of the time, this movement towards finding the self. Right. So the movement actually formally began in 1962. That's when humanistic psychology was founded. And almost at the moment that it was founded, it became this other thing um, culturally, which was the human potential movement. So it had similar goals. The goal was that people could reach their potential, but in the cultural eye, it had some somewhat different techniques. So humanistic psychology began as a largely academic move, movement and was very intellectually focused. And the cultural outgrowth of it was interested in different things like psychedelics as a 
as a way to reach transcendence or have peak experiences. Um, also interested, very interested in encounter groups, which were really popular in the 60s and moving into the early 70s, which involved these kind of weekend-long marathons where people would tell all of their darkest secrets and confront each other on anything that they thought or felt, and these ended up being very dramatic and, and kind of felt revelatory to people, but didn't always tend to have very lasting consequences for them. How how was it that this uh, movement of humanistic psychology moved from this more fringe counterculture element to becoming part of fabric of American culture, do you think? Well, I do think it was a little bit beyond the countercultural element. There were certain people, you know, who were using it for specific purposes, for justification of psychedelics, for example. But I think there were a lot of people during the time who became interested in these concepts of finding out who you really are, what you really want, what your potential could be, wanting your marriage, for example, to fulfill that, to help you grow, and thinking of your partner as a potential agent towards your growth. Um, so these are ideas that kind of were planted in the 60s during this time, and they really did reverberate through the culture. I mean, these, I think a lot of the language of humanistic psychology, most of us are familiar with self-actualization or human potential. and and even more so with these concepts. And I think that's something that started to filter out into the wider culture during that time. And it wasn't always directly from the mouths of humanistic psychologists. Um, it filtered through the feminist movement, for example. Betty Friedan was very influenced by Abraham Maslow. And when she wrote The Feminine Mystique in 1962, she talked specifically about his ideas about reaching your potential. And she, of course, was very influential in women kind of changing their role and it, in achieving some liberation, and some of the guiding ideas were pretty directly informed by that. Wondering if you can expand more on Maslow and his legacy and how it sort of brought about the close during the end of the 60s or so. Well, Maslow was an interesting figure, particularly because he himself was a behaviorist at the beginning of his career in the 30s and really made a shift in the 50s towards this humanistic emphasis. So he's He's really typifies, he's kind of the culture in um, a microcosm, but he was so passionate about this idea once he had this realization that what we needed to do was we needed to consider more variables. We needed to look at people more fully, and we needed to think about health and how people could be great. And so he was a real leader in this, um, and moving into the 60s, his ideas spread much beyond psychology. Actually, the place where he was best received was in um, business management, and that he's still pretty popular today. People might know of his hierarchy of needs or his, his ideas about human motivation that have been very influential in management theory. So he, and he actually died in 1970, so his life just went up, up to that point. Um, but he, in the final years of his life, he ended up going, leaving academia, going and working for a corporation where his job was essentially to just consult um, with the corporation about observations he had about how to maybe help people reach their potential better or ways that the workplace could be humanized that would be more effective. So he would kind of go in one day a week and, and record some ideas onto a tape recorder, and that was his job during that time. Um, so that trajectory, in a way, is is mirroring the movement of these intellectual academic psychology ideas into the wider culture where it's affecting people's lives, people that are going to the workplace and no longer sitting in a gray cubicle but in some space that they've decorated themselves because he 
suggested it might be more, you know, they might have more of an investment in their job or feel better about themselves or more sense of agency. So there are real practical changes happening because of him. Do you think the ideas of humanistic psychology were better able to take root, for example, on the West Coast, where perhaps more conducive atmosphere, less of establishmentarian ideals? Yeah, I absolutely think that the movement did much better in California. Almost everybody who founded the movement and was involved with the movement in its early stages was from the Northeast or the Midwest, and I think without exception all moved to California during that period of time. Um, partly because they just found a more openness and receptiveness to these ideas. Um, California was kind of unique, in particular at this period of time. There was just a lot of innovation in general. There was a lot of government money going into research there. Um, there was kind of a general openness towards new concepts in science and in practice. So I think it was kind of a unique place for humanistic psychology to land. And since, I mean, I'd say since the mid-60s, it's really been the center of the movement, which still exists in a much smaller form today and, and mostly in California. Do you think the development of the movement and the way that the behaviors movement went too far in one direction, the humanistic movement went a little bit too far in the other direction, a bit of a backlash or criticism so that to try and find more of a happy middle between the two? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, one of the things that my book traces, in a sense, is kind of the rise and fall of humanistic psychology. Though Any movement really has a rise and fall. It's not that the movement failed. It's that it kind of had a height of popularity, and then the popularity waned. But I think part of what happened was that it just really did go too far. I mean, the, the kind of counter, countercultural excess, the cultural outgrowth associated with it, the ways that countergroups were abused almost. They became kind of thrill-seeking places, um, and this idea of transcendence or peak experience was people were taking shortcuts, using drugs, um, almost violating some of the original ideas of the movement. Um, and a lot of, you know, the sexual revolution stuff, some of these ideas of liberation became justification for that. So if you just wanted a reason to be able to sleep with people other than your wife or, or something equivalent, then that, that was kind of a simplistic way of seeing humanistic psychology. But that's how it got co-opted, and those are kind of the distortions that, that were created. So there was really um, a, a movement away from a really grounded, intellectually focused movement that had real validity and real potential to change kind of scientific methods in psychology, and then towards these, this excessive cultural emphasis that was pretty dramatic and, and a little over the top. So what do you think current status of uh, humanistic psychology and what do you think it's, is its sort of legacy in today's day and age? I think there are two parts to that answer. I think the current status of humanistic psychology, I mean, it still exists as a movement and it's still vital and in certain ways more vital. I think there's more serious research happening in the field. The, the research sort of got overtaken by the cultural emphases in the 60s. Um, so it's probably in one respect better than ever, but of course doesn't have, it's not in the cultural spotlight like it once was. So I think the legacy of humanistic psychology is kind of evident. It's sort of the air we breathe now. It's like, it's the language that we speak when we're talking to our spouses about what we need or what we want our relationship to be. It's a lot of what we find in when we go to psychotherapy. It's very different to go to psychotherapy now than it was prior to, say, the 1950s, where psychoanalysis was dominant. So when we go now, we sit face-to-face -face with a person. We expect them to be accepting and kind to us and not 
condescending and to kind of treat us as a person and have a really human interaction. And and those are all things that came pretty directly from um, humanistic psychology. Also, a lot of our interests lately in positive psychology, happiness, satisfaction, kind of figuring out, trying to figure those things out comes from humanistic psychology. And turn on almost any talk show and you're going to hear a lot of these concepts, the way that the self is talked about and growth and health and potential and all those things are are kind of all over the talk shows. So it's sort of a uniquely American thing. What what do you think are elements of humanistic psychology in other cultures, other societies? Well, first of all, I mean, I'd say it's it's kind of a mixed bag. If, I wouldn't say just the best elements survived. There were things that were really important that were part of the founding of humanistic psychology that have been lost. And some of it is the kind of existential emphasis, thinking about why we have anxiety in our lives and how it's kind of part of human existence and we kind of, we can't get away from it so we need to make it into something productive. So that for example, but a lot of the more intellectual basis of humanistic psychology has, has lost um, power, I think, in our culture. So some of it's been a distortion. I mean, there's this, there's this expressive individualism that's resulted from a lot of this. So sometimes it's just an excuse for being narcissistic or, you know, self-indulgent. And just to say, oh, I need to go figure out what I really need. I need to get out of this relationship because it's not meeting all my needs. Or, and so there's a movement away from kind of compromise or communi- more communitarian values or something like that. And that wasn't necessarily the intention of the movement. So it really is mixed. I think there are some ways that it's been really positive in some ways that particularly the cultural stuff from the 60s related to it had some negative impacts on, on our current culture. Um, and then in terms of thinking about how it's been, how it was really uniquely popular in America versus the rest of the world, I mean, it was, it really just resonated with Americans during this time period in the 60s. We want, you know, we're really interested in liberation. It was, there was liberation, you know, from the student movement, from civil rights, from women's lib, sexual revolution, all of these currents kind of coalescing in the 60s, and it spoke to us. These concepts really spoke to us. So, yes, it was totally uniquely popular here. Um, But at the same time now, I think it's more popular other places. I think particularly in Europe, encounter groups still happen. Um, Humanistic psychology is much more popular. It's still taught in a lot of universities, and it's not really taught in universities here. I mean, if you take an intro psych class, it's maybe like a paragraph in your intro psych text. And, And I think there are almost no courses at mainstream universities on humanistic psychology now. In a sense, it's spread and now beginning to develop uh, around the globe. Yeah, I think it definitely has. Um, But interestingly, it's kind of more popular in other parts of the globe. I I mean, I mentioned Europe, but I think also Brazil, there's been a lot of activity with humanistic psychology there. There's just kind of these different pockets of of the globe that where it's been of particular interest for whatever reason. Well, it really is a fascinating book. Uh, We're running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have some uh, final words regarding the book, uh, Encountering America, Humanistic Psychology, 60s Culture, and the Shaping of the Modern Self. I mean, I guess in terms of the book, the book kind of parallels the the movement. So it starts out, you know, looking at these intellectual bases of the movement and this critique that's rooted in the 50s and in the culture of the 50s and in what departments of psychology look like in the 50s. And the book kind of changes as... The culture changes. So the first half is where you kind of get the meat of this, what this movement's about, why it matters, why it's serious, why it's important, and 
and then it moves towards the cultural stuff. And for me, that's the fun part of the book. It kind of takes a turn in the second half where you're going on this kind of wild tour of encounter groups and psychedelics and these interracial encounter groups that attempt to solve problems in civil rights and, and also looking at women's lib. And so there's, it, it goes kind of full force into that stuff, and that's really where the juicy part is. And then considers at the end the questions that you're posing today of, like, what's the legacy and how can we evaluate this movement? Was it successful? Was it not? How has it affected us? Well, it really is a great book, and I hope people will uh, go take a look at it. Again, the book is called Encountering America, Humanistic Psychology, 60s Culture, and the Shaping of the Modern Self. And uh, it's written by uh, Dr. Jessica Grogan. Dr. Grogan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me on the show. And you were just listening to Dr. Jessica Grogan discussing the Encountering America. This is the Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. It's not easy having yourself a good time. time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, humanistic or behaviorist. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 uh, would like to know if you think they're more um, part of the humanistic psychology movement or uh, more behaviorist, and a little reason why. All right, Dr. Grogan, you ready to play the game? I am ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, humanistic or behaviorist, it's the talk show host, Jerry Springer. I think he's pretty strongly humanistic, but maybe in the in the um, countercultural humanistic interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number two then, uh, Donald Trump. Oh, I think Donald Trump would be a. I'd put him on the behaviorist end. <laughs> I think part, partly just because of the the kind of um, maybe pretense of science that he would espouse, <laughs> that everything could be understood by some simple formula. All right, number three, uh, humanistic or behaviorist, it's Dr. Phil. Uh, Dr. Phil is definitely humanist. I, I think I think also, um, we, you know, I had mentioned these talk show hosts, but the idea that they're they're humanistic, I mean, all talk shows are humanistic these days, so he's certainly more in that direction. All right, uh, number four, uh, the uh, pop star Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga, <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, I'd say humanistic. <laughs> Just because of the, the kind of holistic emphasis, just kind of being what you are. Uh, all right, number finally, number five, it's uh, President of the United States, Barack Obama. You know, I would put him slightly to the behaviorist end. I hmm. think just because of his pragmatism and uh, and kind of the way that his care and, and study of things. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Grogan. Thank you very much for uh, sticking around playing our game and, again, talking about your book, which is called Encountering America, Humanistic Psychology, 60s Culture, and the Shaping of the Modern Self. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks again. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.